Good morning. The scripture reading this morning is taken from Acts 21, beginning at verse 17, and continuing on to Acts 22, ending at verse 22. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They're all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to, our, excuse me, according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trumetheus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them, and when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Sicilia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. 
And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus, in Sicilia, and brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them, I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you today. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles." Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Um, we continue in our series uh, uh, in Acts living as resurrection people, and we're going to see um, how this plays out. And uh, there's going to be a little bit of a shift now in uh, the narrative that we see in Acts so far. Um, Everything really up until this point um, has been kind of uh, Paul and the church and the gospel uh, on the offensive, 
and uh, moving out, the gospel taking new ground, churches being planted. And uh, from now really to the end, uh, we're going to see Paul having to play defense. And um, uh, I'm really tempted to go into a sporting analogy right here, but for the sake of our English brothers and sisters of this, this morning, I will refrain from doing that. Church unity. We're going to actually talk about that So uh, uh, within that. Um, so here we're going to see uh, Paul um, really having to take on a, a defensive kind of position. We see really his first defense of five that he'll make between now and the end of the chapter. Um, and I don't know about you, but um, when we think about sharing our faith, which we've thought a lot, of, a, a, a lot about in this series in Acts as we see Paul share his faith, as we see other Christians share their faith, as the gospel moves out, um, talking about faith and worldview and, and, and um, wrestling with those things back and forth with non-believers, um, for me, is far easier um, than actually talking about the faith and defending the faith with other believers, and, and by easier, I don't mean the answers are easier. I just mean what it does inside of me is easier. Uh, I have far more compassion. I have far more uh, openness uh, to lost people uh, who don't know the gospel. And I'm, I'm way more gracious with those people than I am with people who should know better or with the people who should think how I think about things. And that's what I really mean by know better. Um, when, when we have to actually dis, uh, discuss and discourse our theology um, with fellow uh, believers or fellow Christians, I find that way harder, way harder. Um, I get way more frustrated with people who I think should know better than secular people or even people of other faiths who I'm far more kind of gracious with. What about you? Because this is a place that we live in uh, where there's plenty of opportunity for both. We don't live in secular France or secular Germany um, where the vast majority of people that you're going to run into don't go to church or, or have no church experience or are thinking about the gospel from almost a clean slate, you know, kind of post-Christian uh, um, society. Um, we're not quite there that yet here, right? There's plenty of religious kind of happenings and traditions um, that have inculcated into our culture that are still here today, right? And that's where a lot of the kind of friction that we feel is between uh, an increasingly secular post-Christian culture kicking back against a lot of those things, and we enter into this kind of culture war as Christians a lot of times. And that's the space in which um, I get frustrated. I get frustrated because in that space, the gospel uh, it can get lost very quickly. Over here, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about the gospel. We're talking about Jesus. We're talking about how he comes. And over here, we're talking about, like, should we use an organ in church or should we use drums? Or what about this uh, parade? Or can we have this parade? What about these holy days? And we get bogged down in the mire of stuff, and I just get really frustrated with a lot of that. It's not the reason we planted a church by any stretch of the imagination, um, but it certainly is one of the benefits <laughs> because you get, to, you get a clean slate. You get to actually ask the important kind of questions. What really matters um, as we gather and what can we lay aside? And yet we're going to see in this chapter the church having to wrestle with some of these things, having to wrestle with tradition, having to wrestle with customs, having to wrestle with what it, what it actually means to have a public Christian identity. And what, what do we have to fight for and what can we uh, allow? What is permissible within this? 
And so let's walk through this. Paul now plays defense. He's gone on these three epic missionary journeys um, <clears throat> from, the, from Antioch. Uh, and he's now, we're going to see, shifting into these kind of five trials. Um, and he gives these five defense, uh, speeches of defense on these kind of trials. And this is interesting um, because Luke is writing, and I, I don't think it's, it's a, uh, a coincidence. These things aren't by accident. Especially as we, we started this series right after Easter last year. Um, now, we've taken a couple breaks for other things in between. But we, we titled this series Living as Resurrection People because of that. The resurrection of Jesus changes who we are as people. It should change the way we live as Christians. We are resurrection people. And it's interesting because there's a lot of similarities that Luke records here between Paul's, Paul's uh, the time that we're going to see with Paul now, and the time with Jesus leading up to his Passion Week, of which we approach. Here's a, here's a few of the similarities. Both were rejected by their own people, arrested without cause, and imprisoned. Both Jesus and Paul went through that. Both were unjustly accused and willfully misrepresented by false witnesses. Both of them were slapped in the face in court. Both of them were victims of secret Jewish plots. Both of them heard the crowd screaming, away with him, kill him, crucify him, let's be done with this. Both of them were subjected to five trials and defenses. Paul, um, Jesus, and, and remember, Jesus is, is both, uh, sorry, too many people here. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, also wrote uh, the gospel named after him, Luke's gospel. And in, in his gospel, um, we see Jesus, Jesus get recorded these trials. Jesus is brought before Annas. He's brought before the Sanhedrin. He's brought before King Herod Antipas. And we see two trials before Pilate. Five different trials of Jesus. With Paul, now recorded in the book of Acts, we'll see the same. This one here, the first one, the, in front of the Jewish crowd at the temple. He'll stand before the Sanhedrin, before Felix, before Festus and King Herod Agrippa. Both of them, Jesus and Paul, having these, making these five trials and defenses. There's this major theme that Luke starts to develop um, in, in the book of Acts from now on. And it's really the reaction to the gospel of these two communities, the Jewish community and the Gentile community. And it's important for us to remember that Luke writes um, as a historian um, and as a theologian. And as a historian, he's recording really how the gospel is being reacted to by the Jewish uh, people who... It was their leaders who rejected Jesus, had him crucified, and we're going to see similarities with Paul, and then how the Gentiles, and the Romans particularly, were open and, and receiving to that. Now, they're culpable at certain kind of parts, but for the most part, I think he's writing as a historian, establishing this religious liberty, the legality of Christianity. Christianity wasn't some uprising in rogue element. It wasn't a political movement trying to overthrow the Roman, Roman government. And, and Rome itself, over and over and over again, will exonerate them. As a theologian, he writes how the gospel really works its way out, how it works its way into our lives, and how it works its way out in our dealings with each other and with other people. And just as the Jewish leaders rejected Jesus, so now they reject Paul. Um, it's interesting, the details that Luke records, it says, they drug, they drug Paul out of the temple and they slammed the gates closed. And I don't think that's just a, a, a physical detail that happened there. I think what, what, what Luke is recording is this uh, metaphorical slamming of the gates of, to the gospel. 
The Jewish people have had enough. The Jewish leaders have had enough. They drag him out and they slam the gates closed on the temple. There's a finality in that. The the Romans, on the other hand, are far more reluctant to kill Paul. They often spare his life. Over and over again, we're going to hear different officials uh, say, no, he's innocent. There's no reason he should be in prison. There's no reason to take his life. Both Jesus and Paul um, are exonerated by Rome three times. Paul is going to be exonerated by Lysias, we'll see, Festus, King Agrippa, Jesus by Pilate, King Herod, and then by Pilate a, a second time. And so you see this, these tracks that Paul and Jesus are both um, running down on in Jerusalem and the rejection that they have, the trials that they have to endure, the physical pains that they endure. And while it's Paul's suffering isn't redemptive like Jesus's was, it's exactly what Jesus said to his disciples, isn't it? We're often told that being a Christian will make your life easier, but that's just not true. Often becoming a Christian makes your life a lot harder. <laughs> now for us in the West, we have this great privilege and responsibility of uh, not facing suffering in the same way. But suffering you will face. Jesus said that's part of the deal. If you follow me, you'll be rejected like I was. You'll have to endure suffering just like I did. It is to take up your cross and follow me. We said last week that salvation is free. It costs you nothing. But following Jesus costs everything. We happen to live in a time in history and in a culture where it doesn't cost us our life. But that hasn't always been the case, nor is it the case now in other parts of the world. And our suffering does. It pales in comparison, doesn't it? It pales in comparison to those who are literally living um, secret Christian lives. We get to meet freely and openly this morning. We hold Christian conferences. We even hold conferences debating like secondary and tertiary issues of of our theology together. Um, Those conferences aren't being held in North Korea. They're not being held in Syria and Saudi Arabia and other places around the world. The church doesn't meet freely and openly. To do so might cost you your life. Now, we're not to feel guilty about that. Don't feel guilty about that this morning. It's by God's grace that we live in the, in the time that we have. Don't feel guilty, but feel empowered in that. We should take advantage of our Christian liberty in that, in that way. And yet often some of us live secret lives, even though we have the freedom not to do so in practical ways. And so let's walk through uh, the text here this morning and and draw out uh, what we see God doing in his sovereignty across human history, but how that really applies to our lives as well. And so the first theme I want us to see this morning is humility and love. Humility and love. We're going to look at kind of three themes, or three packages of themes. The first one's humility and love. And so we're going to look at this uh, interaction between James and Paul. James is essentially the visible leader of the Jewish Christian church. And Paul, the visible leader of the Gentile Christian church. And so what does it say? When James, in verse 17, uh, when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, uh, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. And after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they had heard it, they glorified God. We see them celebrate what God had done. It's not what Paul had done. It's not, 
It's not what, what uh, his team had done. The credit is rightly, squarely placed at the feet of the one who deserves it. It's what God had done. God was doing these things through the gospel. And as, as, a, as a result of that, we see thousands of Gentiles believe. Multiple churches planted throughout Asia, modern-day Turkey, into Greece, Rome. It starts to spread throughout the Gentile world. And, and, he, and he says, and when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. And so even within the Jewish community, of which Christianity is born out of and fulfills many of the prophecies, thousands are believing as well. The gospel is doing its work. And so they're celebrating what God had done through the, the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's the power to save We see this uh, grace-motivated gift in, 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 in the whole reason that Paul was there. The whole reason that Paul wanted to come to Jerusalem. For the last two years, he had been planning, right? Um, the, the famine that Agabus had predicted had come, um, and, and whilst it had subsided, they were still reeling in the aftermath of that. And so there were, there were Jewish Christians who were poor, who were struggling. And Paul says, the Gentiles, you have received spiritual wealth from the Jews. How much then do we owe it to receive, to, to give back our physical wealth, our material wealth? And this is what we see all throughout the book of Acts. The early church starts in Jerusalem, and those that had much shared with those who didn't have any, so that it could be said that there was none without any need among them. Now it's the church in Jerusalem that's in need. And it is the Gentiles who benefited spiritually from them who give back. And so Paul is coming, and he's bringing this offering, this love offering to them. And he really comes with two different reasons for that, twofold. One was the, to meet the physical needs of the poor there. Um, they actually had needs, and he wanted to meet it. But secondly, it was to sh show solidarity with the Jewish Christians. Paul was aware of, of the divide that, was, that was, was there, the murmuring that was taking place. Remember, it was the Jews that constantly opposed him everywhere. Now he's back in Jerusalem at Passover. So all those Jews in Ephesus, all the Jews in Corinth, all the Jews in all the places that he was before, many of them are now in Jerusalem with Paul. They, they were observing their holy feast, and they were back in, Jeru in Jerusalem for Pentecost. So he wants to show solidarity with the Jewish Christians. So there's this grace-motivated gift that is there. And there's humility that's displayed. Would the Jews receive the offering from the Gentiles? Right? Jews didn't receive anything from Gentiles. They didn't eat with them. They were unclean. They separated themselves from them. Now, would the gospel change that? Would these, would these Jews who are now Messianic Jews, Jews who actually believed in the, in the good news of Jesus, would they receive something from the Gentiles? And so there was humility on their part to actually receive that. And then Paul agrees to participate in these Jewish customs, even though they're not required. Now, we need to know what's going on here, right? Um, the Jews participated in the law, 
And the law demanded all these different sacrifices. It demanded certain kind of customs. Uh, uh, there was a lot of uh, dietary laws. They couldn't eat certain things. Uh, they couldn't um, associate with certain things. There were certain things that made you unclean. You had to go through rituals to make you then clean to be able to enter into the temple, to be able to offer different gifts. And Paul rightly understands that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these things. We don't sacrifice anymore. You don't need the blood of an animal to cover our sin anymore because Jesus has died once for all. It's the perfect sacrifice. Is there a need then to go through certain kind of cleansing rituals? And so Paul will write um, as he's instructing the church, um, no, not really. He's like, there, if, it's, if there is no such thing as kind of clean and unclean anymore. What about being circumcised? Do Jewish, do Jewish Christians now circumcise their children as they always have, as a sign of the covenant? And so Paul, as he's explaining, as he's teaching, remember, Paul is straddling two worlds. There's Jewish people and Gentile people where he is, and so he's, he's giving instructions. He doesn't want the Gentiles to have to be burdened down by the law. They, they were never required to, to fulfill the law because they were Gentiles. And so he says, I'm not going to burden them with the law now that they're free from the law. The law has been fulfilled. But with Jewish people who had grown up under the law, um, Paul permitted them to continue some of their customs. He didn't say you must end it. You have to end it. He permitted those things. And we actually see Paul participating in some of those things occasionally, right? And so he has Timothy circumcised because Timothy has Jewish lineage and he's like, this is just going to be easier for us to be able to reach Jewish people um, if you're circumcised. Where Titus, he says, absolutely not. We're not circumcising Titus. He's, he, 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 by birth, has no reason. He's, he's a full Gentile. He has no reason to be circumcised. And so for the sake of the gospel, the same reason that I'll circumcise Timothy, we're not circumcising Titus. Uh, if you remember a few weeks back, Paul, uh, on his way back to Jerusalem uh, a different time, actually stops for a haircut. You're like, what's up with that? Why is the Bible recording haircuts? Um, and it's the same thing here. They're shaving their head. He enters into a vow of thanksgiving. And part of that Nazarite vow was to shave uh, their head. And so there are times where Paul, who was a Jew, grew up a Jew, he would actually say, I'm, I'm the Hebrew of Hebrews, participates in Jewish customs even though they're not required because Jesus has fulfilled the law. We no longer live under the law. And so what's going on here now? <clears throat> Paul's displaying humility by agreeing to participate in some of these customs, even though he's not required by the gospel to, to do this. So what's going on with Paul? Is Paul a sellout? Is Paul capitulating to this pressure? Um, some scholars actually think he was. Is Paul compromising the gospel now? I don't think that's what's happening here. Listen to Paul's writing uh, to the Galatians. This is what Paul wrote already. Listen to how strong his language is. And what had happened in the church in Galatia was Jews were infiltrating that and trying to get them to live by the law. So this very, this very controversy. And he writes to them, he says, "'O foolish Galatians,' Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit 
By works of the law or by hearing by faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, that you, now being, that you are now being perfected by the flesh? If it's the Spirit who saves us, why then do you think you're going to perfect yourself by something other than that? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. He goes on. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham. And those who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. He, he wrote with pretty strong language that we are no longer under the law. And if we're relying on the law to justify us, then, then, then it's not the gospel that we believe. So now is he in Jerusalem going, no, okay, yeah, I'll go along with the law? Is he selling out? I don't think so. He was really clear. He's really clear in his letter to the Romans what is happening. This is a man who is willing to die for the gospel. Knew that when he came to Jerusalem, there was going to be trouble and went anyway. It, it, with, I mean, if you were going to fudge a little bit, surely you would do that that time they were going to stone you and leave you for dead. I think that would be the time that I would give in a little bit. But he doesn't. He actually says, listen, my life is nothing to me compared to finishing the task that God has given me. He even confronted Peter in Jerusalem for doing, this, for, for doing that. <clears throat> Peter, would, um, Peter was eating with the Gentiles, understood the gospel. And then some Jews pressured him into when the Gentiles come to remove himself. He wouldn't have table fellowship with them anymore. And Peter comes to Jerusalem and is like, what are you doing? You have forsaken the gospel. <laughs> this is a gospel issue. And he confronts him publicly. And so what are we to make of all of this? Is now, is now Paul doing the same thing? Well, what is the concern here? This is going to help us. What is James's concern? We see from the text it's not about the way of salvation. <clears throat> we see their meetings before. They both agreed that it was through Christ that we are saved and not the law. So it's not a salvific issue. It's not about what Paul was teaching the Gentiles. But what Paul was teaching the Jews who lived among the Gentiles, that's the wording in verse 21, right? So if we um, go back to the text, sorry, I'm in uh, Galatians, let me go back here in Acts. Um, if we look in verse 21, and they have been told about, uh, about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to the customs. So he was concerned about, um, not, what, not about what Paul was teaching Gentiles, but what he was teaching the Jews who lived among the Gentiles. He wasn't, this wasn't a concern about the moral law. They had agreed um, that they should live holy lives. Refrain from sexual immorality. They, they had, this isn't a moral, this isn't about what he's teaching morally, but about what he's teaching the Jews who live among the Gentiles about Jewish customs. You don't, have to, you don't have to do these Jewish customs anymore. So the crux of the matter was, should Jewish believers continue to observe Jewish cultural practices? 
Now, I'm really glad we live in a place where cultural practices really don't matter much. Right? This is a big deal, right? You're like, oh, this ancient book, and yet here we are as Christians. What cultural practices that we practice, do they matter? What cultural practices we practice in public? Have any bearing on what the gospel says? The rumor was that Paul was teaching those Jews not to observe the law anymore. And so, so James asks Paul to participate in a cleansing ceremony, probably a, uh, probably a seven-day ceremony. Because Paul's been gone and among the Gentiles for so long, for him to come back and enter into um, parts of the temple, he would have had to go through a cleansing ceremony. So they ask him to take part of that. And then also there's these four men that, they, that are in the middle of a Nazarite vow. And he asks, will you, will you essentially pay their temple expenses, which could have been quite costly for the four of them. They're going to go and shave their head. Offer certain, what was required of them to fulfill this vow. As a sign that, that you're actually one who observes the law as a Jew. That you're, that you're, that you're okay with Jews observing uh, these kind of customs. And so what does Paul do? In humility, he says, yeah, okay. And he agrees to do it. This wasn't a, a gospel issue on this is how we, we are right before the Lord. This isn't a, a morality issue. This was a custom issue. And so what is Paul doing here? Because I got to be honest, if it's me, I'm going, nah, I'm not doing that. There's no need for that. And it's true, he was teaching those while he was out planting churches that the, there's no need then to observe the law, but he wasn't doing that across the board. In fact, we'll see later on, he'll actually teach uh, the Jews and the Gentiles to how to live amongst each other, while some are observing customs and some aren't. Paul preaches the gospel that Jesus preached. In Romans 10:4. he actually says, Christ is the end of the law to everyone who believes. Christ has fulfilled the law. We're no longer under the law. We are now under grace. And yet, in Romans, if you go, we don't have time to look at all this today, but Romans chapter 14 and 15, in 1 Corinthians 8 and 10, he doesn't forbid outright Jewish customs. He leaves it as a matter of their preference and conscience. If, if you're a Jew, raised as a Jew your whole life, not to eat certain things that are unclean, you become a Christian, you understand these things, but it still defiles your conscience to eat something that's unclean. Paul's like, then, then don't eat it. And for those of you whose conscience isn't defiled by that, um, lay, lay that aside for your brother. He, he, he does refer to them, though, as the weaker brother. That's the weaker position to hold. But he's like, some of us are, are still holding this, and that's Okay. Um, if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians 9, because this is going to, we're going to see Paul, uh, his strategy, and, and, and this is really what's in action. We get insight into his instruction in the, in, in the church. Verses 19, I mean, read the whole chapter um, later, but for the sake of, of time and, and what we're, we're doing here, he's discussing an issue that's come up. Can we eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols? Can we drink this certain stuff? All, all, all these kind of different things. And this is what he says. Verse 19. For though I am free from all, 
I'm not, he's like, I'm free. I'm free from the law. I'm free from the Jews. I'm free, why? I'm, I'm free from all those things. I have made myself a servant to all. Although I'm free and don't have to obey those things, I will make myself a servant and in a position to obey those things. Why? Why would you do that, Paul? Why are you going to go along with this, Paul, in Acts? Why are you going to go and, and go through these uh, temple customs and all this sort of stuff? Why? That I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew. Why? In order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, Gentiles, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. So, so what does he say? There's those that see themselves as under the law, still practicing Jewish customs, the Jews. He says, I became one just like them. When I was with them, I practiced what they practiced. I didn't come in and just try to be offensive just to be offensive. I came in to win them over so they would understand the gospel. And when I was with those that weren't under the law, I didn't live as though I was under the law. Although, he says, I still had boundaries. I was not under the, the law of Moses, but now I'm under the law of Christ. So there's still things that constrain the way I act. It's not like, hey, we're going to a strip club. Oh, I'll go to a strip club so I can reach people that go to strip clubs. You're like, ah, I'm probably, I'm, I'm under the law of Christ, so I'm going to have to say no to that. <laughs> right? The, he, he, I, he said, I'm still constrained by Christ, but I'll lay, I'll lay these things aside. Why? For the sake of the gospel, for the sake of reaching more people. He goes on. To the weak... I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. This is Paul's strategy. Paul was a gospel chameleon. He just takes on the, the environment that he's in. With the parameters of being under the law of Christ, right? There's certain things. He's, he's not going to do sinful things. But he becomes all things to all men for the sake of the gospel that he might actually win some of them to Christ. Real gospel flexibility in his life. Paul's not this rigid kind of guy. I'll eat meat when I'm with meat eaters. I'll be a vegetarian when I'm with vegetarians. I, I don't really care. These things aren't gospel issues. Some vegetarians and vegans might think it is, but that's a different story for a different time. Right? Paul's like, hey, I'll be all things to all men as long as this isn't a sin issue for the sake of them. <laughs> if it didn't compromise the gospel, Paul was up for it. Now, this is important for us to remember. This is a transitional period in Christian history. Right? God's people, God's chosen people, were the Jews. They were the nation of Israel. His promises, his covenants made to them all get fulfilled in Christ. And some of those Jews recognize that, become Christians. Some reject that, and, and that's why now you have Jews and Christians, two separate categories. Some rejected Jesus as the Messiah and are still waiting for the Messiah to come. Still living, rejecting the New Testament, and just still trying to live according to the law, the Torah. 
But for those Christians who, who emerged into Christianity, imagine being that person. Imagine that time. There's this transitional period. And Paul's like, I don't, I don't mind straddling these two worlds for the sake of the gospel. He lays aside his Christian liberty for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of other people. There's a, lot, there's, there's a lot for us to learn in that, isn't there? Because we're a young church, because we're a new church, we don't have all the kind of traditions, right? No one can come and say, well, we've always done that because always in village has been about five minutes, like, like a nanosecond in the scope of church history. But it's important for us to understand these things because as we move outside of these walls, there might be times that we lay aside our Christian liberty for the sake of other people. And this is what I mean by this is easier when I'm around non-Christians because there's not as much that I find right now I have to lay aside when I'm with those people. I can go to the pub and I can have a pint and no one bats an eye. But sometimes in these circles, you're like, okay, Will I lay aside my Christian liberty for the sake of someone who sees all alcohol, a teetotaler, a sin? Again, Paul says this is the weaker position. This isn't the strong position. This is the weaker position. And yet I will become weak to win those that are weak. Or will I say no in my Christian liberty? What about food? This was the big thing for them as well, food. We, uh, a few years ago, we were invited to a, a picnic um, for some friends of ours that we had met through kids at, uh, at school, their parents, and, um, but they were all Muslim asylum seekers. And so we were going to their picnic, and everybody's supposed to bring some food, right? Now, I could just be like, listen, halal doesn't mean jack to me. I'm not a Muslim. I'm not a Christian. I'm just bringing non-halal food, and you'll just have to deal with it. But well, what's the right thing to do there? You, you go and you get halal, halal food. Not a lot of places to find that in Belfast, by the way, but, but it's there. And you bring, halal, you bring their food for their custom, for the sake of them. I'll become weak. I'll, become, I'll bring halal food. I'll eat halal food for the sake of, I'll eat kosher food. Even silly things, like when I'm asked to preach in a place that I don't really maybe know, I always ask, what, what do you kind of normally wear, right? Because if it's like a suit and tie kind of place, and I rock up with like jeans, and I just know that there's some people, that, and I don't get asked to preach in those places very often. Like. But, if, but I want to know, hey, what, what's, just, what's the norm for you guys that I don't just come in and, and offend people unnecessarily? I've, I've been to Thailand a couple times, and uh, what's kind of custom there when you go into um, Buddhist temples is you take your shoes off. But I'm not like, well, I'm a Christian. This doesn't apply to me. I'm coming in with my shoes. No, you take, you take your shoes off. Why? I, is that a custom that I, that, I, that, I, that I have to hold in my theological understanding of the world? No, not at all. And yet I do. Paul was trying to keep Christian unity. And among those that were still zealous for the law, the text said. There's these, we have thousands of Christians 
the Christian Jews, but they're all still zealous for the law. And Paul would say, okay, that's the weaker position, and yet to the weak I'll become weak. I'll take that position. He was humble. Maybe this is why he writes things like, be patient with one another, bear with one another in love, forgive one another, welcome one another. See, it's easy to to be patient and bear and forgive and welcome people that are like you and that have very similar worldviews and they've just, okay, they've stepped out of bounds a little bit there or they've, you know, okay, whatever. But, But what about people that are very different from you? What does it mean to bear with them? What does it mean to welcome them? What does it mean to bear with one another in love and forgive one another? Others in our church, within our, our church. Again, that's, that's probably, as far as easiness goes, easier. What about then with other Christians outside of our church? And again, for me, this is where it gets difficult. Because I feel like you should know better. Why are you accepting this weaker position? Don't be the weaker brother. Be the stronger brother. Get it together. And it's very easy for pride to set in there, isn't it? And so we have this. How do we, how do we interact even with the other Christian churches in our, in our midst? And so we want to be generous. We want to be patient. We want to be all of these other things. Um, and some of those things are, are in things that just don't matter as much. Um, we have, we've, <clears throat> obviously we're a, a growing church, so lots of new people. I always try to meet with as many as I can. I can't do that as much anymore because there's more of us. Um, but I had a flawless track record that I probably took a little bit of pride in, so it's probably God t- gave me a loss in this one. But basically, if I had met somebody for like dinner or coffee, um, was able to kind of explain village and the story of that or whatever, um, I was batting a thousand, that doesn't matter in this culture, sorry, I was like undefeated in those people would be part of our church. They would generally be a part of village. And I was like, oh, cool, cool. Now, I don't think I had lot, like lots of like, okay, this is me doing this in there, but maybe there was a little bit. Um, but we had a couple come, um, moved over from England and uh, had come for a few weeks and here or there. And they're like, well, we're trying some other churches in the area. And so I said, you know, what you're supposed to as a pastor. Oh, that's great. You know, good job. And, you know, whatever. And um, and then um, I had met with them, and that went well and answered all their questions. And I was like, all right, probably a done deal then. They'll be a part of Village, you know, like everybody else has been. And then I got a text the next week. Hey, really, thanks for your hospitality. We really enjoyed Village. It was great. Um, but we're going to go to Strandtown Baptist. And I was like, oh, that hasn't happened before. <laughs> It'll happen again. It's fine. And, and here's the thing about that. Here's the thing I was able to say. Brilliant. Lee's a great pastor. I know they're elders. They're fantastic people. When it comes to the things that matter, we're in full agreement with Strandtown Baptist. Now, if you go there, culturally, it's a little bit different than here. And that's the, those were the things that, that kind of made the difference for them. It felt more like what they were used to, and, and that's okay. That's okay. Paul demonstrates Christian maturity by being patient. It's only children that demand their own way all the time. Right? Parents know that to be true. But Paul's trying with the other leaders, trying to come to consensus. That was the bulk of the sermon, so you're, don't, don't panic. Secondly, hostility and lies. This is the fastest bit. We see then this contrast really between how these leaders acted and how the mob kind of acts. 
Um, there's false accusations. If you notice in verse 28, um, what do they say? Sorry, I'm... Um, in, get back here. What are their accusations against him? Crying out, men of Israel, help this man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Now, that's not true. We already saw he was teaching Gentiles and he was, he was conditioning his message. He wasn't telling the Jews they had to abandon the law. He wasn't preaching against the temple. So there's this false accusations of everyone everywhere and that he's defiled the temple, bringing in um, a, a Greek. Again, that's not true. He actually wasn't, he wasn't defiling the temple. He was going through a purification process to not defile the temple. That was the whole point of him going through that. You had some Jews from Ephesus who recognized uh, Trophimus, who's from, uh, from there as well, and just assumed that, brought, that, him brought, that he brought him in. Now, Paul wouldn't have done that because the penalty for a, a Gentile going beyond the court of the Gentiles was the death penalty. And this is interesting. These are similar charges that, that they brought up and the, that Paul oversaw the murder of Stephen. Speaking against this holy place in the law. That's what really got them wound up. And so they have these deliberate lies to try to kill Paul. And this mob mentality sets in just like it did with Jesus. It's interesting, in, 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 in that span where Jesus enters Jerusalem, and it's Hosanna, Hosanna, and there's palm branches, and days later, crucify him, kill him. I'm sure they weren't the exact same people in both of those. But the mood had changed so much by this mob mentality that it was whipped up. And he's saved by the Romans, the military tribute comes, and um, they, they arrest him, take him into custody so that he's not killed. And again, you get these little details. They bind him in two chains, one for his hands, one for his feet, exactly how Agabus, the prophet, said would happen. This hostility, these lies, contrasted the humility and love. And then thirdly, we have the honesty and loyalty of Paul in his defense. We see Lysias assuming that he's this Egyptian terrorist uh, who was basically a false prophet who had gathered a bunch of people um, before and basically said he was going to overthrow Jews and the, and the Romans. And the Romans put down that rebellion, but th he was able to escape. Lysias assumes maybe it's, it's him. Maybe he's, he assumes he's an Egyptian because of his shaved head at, at this point. Um, but he speaks to him in Greek. And to the Romans, uh, he speaks their language to the Greek, uh, and he clarifies who he is and who he isn't. And he asks them, can I, can I basically address the crowd? And they let him on the steps here. And then he turns and he addresses the crowd in their language, in a Hebrew Aramaic. Even that alone. Here's Paul being all things to all men. To the Greek, he's speaking their language. To the Hebrews, he's speaking their language. And they hear him speak their language and they stop and they listen. Now notice his language because we're going to learn a few things here as we close. His language all throughout this speech is one uh, connecting himself and the story of the gospel to the Hebrew people. He's not against uh, the law and, and the Hebrew people in the temple in the way that they're accusing him of being. 
And so his language starts off with brothers and fathers. This, I'm, I'm part of the same family that you're a part of. He appeals to his training of Gamaliel, who had serious Jewish credit. He's like, I, I'm one of you. I was trained by Gamaliel. Secondly, noticed his zeal for God. And he says, listen, my zeal um, for, for, the, for God is as great as your zeal was. Now, your zeal is misplaced. But he, he appeals, my, my zeal is the same for God. So much so that I was like persecuting Christians. So much so I'm doing what you're doing now. And you can go and ask the Sanhedrin. They can testify to that because they're the ones who gave me the letters and the authority to be doing this. Thirdly, he then gives the story of his conversion. Whilst out terrorizing the church, Jesus showed up and met me personally. And again, the details that, that Luke records here. He met him at noon, right? Noon, on the way to Damascus. Noon is when the sun would have been at its brightest and its highest. And yet there was, a, there was something that outshone even the, the sun on the brightest part of the day, Jesus himself. He testifies that Jesus himself spoke to him. He, he witnessed the resurrected Jesus. Fourth then, he, he uh, appeals to Ananias as he goes then, um, after he's blinded, he goes, um, and, and, and he says, Ananias was there, who was a devout observer of the law and highly respected among the Jews. He's continually tying back his story to the Hebrew Jewish story. That Jesus is, an, is, is the fulfillment of all of these things. He records the conversation that takes place, place there, referring to Jesus, referring to Yahweh as the God of our fathers. This isn't a new God. This isn't, this isn't some foreign pagan God. This is the same God of our fathers. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he says he actually heard and met the righteous one. Now, that's, that's not just, oh, he's speaking of Jesus being righteous. Righteous one is how the Old Testament referred to him. This is uh, Isaiah's language all over the place, of which they would have knew and understood. He talks about the vision that he has in the temple. I'm, I was in the temple. I was praying. And there had a vision of Jesus himself. And in that vision of Jesus, he's commissioned to the Gentiles. You see, he's walking, he's walking them through, connecting his story to the Jewish story. This is a fulfillment of the law. And then once he says Gentiles, rah, they explode and they won't let him, finish the, let him finish. Now, three things here and then we're done that I want us to, to think about for us is we have to um, talk to either lost people or even each other as we disagree on certain things other Christians outside of, of our particular tradition. One notice is calmness. And I'm just telling you right now, if I had been beaten <laughs> and dragged out and all that, all, all that the Jews had done to per persecute me all throughout these three missionary journeys, I'm not sure I would start off with uh, the language of brothers and fathers. I'd be like, listen here, you idiots. You guys can't figure this out? But he's not. He doesn't speak with anger, but with meekness. And again, meekness isn't weakness. Meekness is power under control. 
So he has the full power of Jesus. He's not afraid, and yet he's calm. He's under control. He's gentle. Why? Because he has compassion on them. He's trying to win them, as he said. Paul is no culture warrior out trying to defend the culture of one particular part of his faith. Culture really didn't matter to, to Paul. I think that's a great lesson for us to learn to some degree, right? We, we, the culture that we should be um, defending is the culture of the kingdom, gospel culture. And yes, we live in a particular time, in a particular place, in a particular culture, and we're not free from that. But if being, being a Christian to you means more about defending your particular kind of cultural context than it does the gospel, we have a lot to learn from what happens in the book of Acts and the writings of Paul. Paul isn't hung up with those things. If Paul were here today, Paul wouldn't be all trying to defend orange kind of culture. He doesn't care about any of that. What he cares about is the message of Jesus. Now, that's a challenge for me because we, I still need to interact with those kind of people the way that Paul did, with calmness and compassion, seeing them as the weaker position, trying to win them over to the goodness of Jesus. Secondly, he has courage. So although he's calm, although he's meek, he doesn't bend. He stood his ground. Why? Why, why? This is such a powerful combination. He's, he's gentle and he's compassionate and he's meek because he loves people. But he's also bold and won't break and won't bend because he loves Jesus and the gospel. And that's a powerful combination to have someone who knows what they believe, who's not willing to compromise on what they believe, and yet because they love people, don't use this as a hammer to just bash people with, but enter into their lives with courage and conviction. Paul understood what we need to understand as well. You and I are not responsible for producing fruit. I'm not responsible for, for winning people to Jesus. That's Jesus' job. That's why at the beginning they're like told all that God had done. It's just my job and your job to be faithful. And that's what Paul does. I'm gonna be faithful to people. I'm gonna be faithful with a message to those people and leave the consequences and the fruit that is produced or not where my life goes or where it doesn't to the Lord. And that takes courage. And it takes thirdly, the last thing, calling. He was calm and courageous because he was so sure of his calling. Paul knew what his assignment was. It came directly from Jesus. It was to go and proclaim the good news. But here's the thing. It's the same calling from the same person that you and I have. Now granted, we didn't receive that in a blinding light and hear the audible voice of Christ. But it's right there in this same book. <clears throat> Jesus tells his disciples, it's your job to go. Go and share the good news. And I'll be with you the whole time. And actually, I'm getting ready to leave. And don't start this mission until you're empowered by my spirit. Wait. And the Holy Spirit will come. And will indwell and empower you on mission. Which is why the fruit of the Spirit in our lives is joy and peace 
and love. Because those are the tools that we need to actually bear witness to who Jesus is in our life and what he has done for us. May we be um, people like this. May we follow Paul's example in his commitment, in his courage, in his, un, his clear, crystal clear understanding of the gospel, but also how to apply that in really tricky situations, culturally. What can I enter into culturally that doesn't compromise the gospel? Knowing there's gonna be some things I'm gonna say no to, and some things that I'm like, okay, this isn't my preference, but for the sake of these people, I'll, I'll do this. Hopefully, winning them to a stronger position. And to do that with compassion, to do that not out of anger, but to do that with humility and, and love. Why did, Paul, why did Paul behave this way? Because he was a resurrection person. Because this is how Jesus acted. This is exactly what Jesus did. He's just following the way of Jesus. The literal way of Jesus in Jerusalem. Being arrested, being beaten, being threatened with death. Jesus doesn't retaliate in anger. Jesus doesn't, Jesus goes all the way to his death. Why? Because he loved them. Because he was wanting to win them over. And quite literally, the difference between Paul and Jesus is Jesus does that by his death and by his resurrection. It is by his death, his body broken, his blood shed for us, that we are then able to act like Paul as the fruit of the Spirit bears witness in our own life, which is why we proclaim the death of Jesus every single week. That's why we'll do it again now. May we live our lives practicing the way of Jesus in real tangible ways. It's why these practices that we find in the Scripture aren't just arbitrary. They're formative. We repeat certain things week after week because it's formation through repetition. Because if you're like me, I just forget. Like I can literally preach this sermon and tomorrow live a different way because my memory is so short. My flesh is so weak. And so I need to be reminded week after week after week of what Jesus has done and accomplished for me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for um, your death and resurrection that makes this kind of life possible. We thank you for the examples of, of great men and women of faith that we see throughout the scripture, um, people like uh, Paul and his team, who empowered by your spirit, convinced of the good news of Jesus, are willing to lay aside their rights, their freedoms, and even their life if needs be for the sake of of the gospel for the sake of people not perishing without Jesus not entering into eternity apart from Christ the highest calling of all and Father you've given us that same calling some of us as kind of full time workers like Paul, others who were supporting the work but staying in their, in their locale as well, some with, with kind of secular uh, jobs if we can use that kind of language um, but being faithful in, in, in that midst as missionaries as well. And so, Father, in whatever way you've called us, you've called us all to the same thing. May we be faithful in the way that you've called us.
Would you give us wisdom um, on how to walk this path and where to exercise our freedom freely and where to lay it aside for the good of others? Father, we confess to be able to do that, we need to know your gospel well. And so make us students of the word. Give us an appetite um, to learn, to consider. You've given us, you've promised us that you've given us all that we need to live a life of godliness. The, this book of wisdom that you've given us, your Holy Spirit indwelling us. Father, as we come and we take these elements, being reminded of the death of Jesus, um, Father, we, we do that confessing that this is our lifeblood. Not, not in any tangible way in, in that there's something mis, you know, mysterious about the bread and the wine, but as these symbols confessing all that you have done for us, May we live as resurrection people and the full implications of that, which will take us the rest of our lifetime um, to fully understand. Father, where we fail in those things, it's that same gospel, it's that same grace that we come back to, being renewed and refreshed, being assured of your love and forgiveness for us that motivates us to go back out again. Would you do it again even this morning, Lord?